You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. In the spring 2016 issue, J-19, the Journal of 19th Century Americanists, published a forum provocatively titled The End of the End of the Canon. Needless to say, a C-A-N-O-N canon is an authoritative list of sacred texts or an agreed-upon group of saintly writers. Toni Morrison, concerned as she was with canonization and empire, once wrote poetically about the connection between a canon with just two ends and a canon with three. But in general, a canon is considered to be a more or less sanguine collection of greatest hits, or representative works from a given literary tradition. The particular authors and works of a canon might change according to who you ask, but the basic idea of a canon remains the same. These are the greatest works, the most teachable texts, the most edifying images and ideas. At once a list of great works and an armory of loaded guns, the canon produces a relationship to the past that inspires reverence while dictating the terms of what is valuable in American cultural history. I'm Sean Gordon. I received my PhD in English and American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I'm Carrie Schneider, Assistant Professor of English at Cameron University. And while we're talking about the canon, we're specifically talking about irreverence toward the canon, which is a phrase that comes out of the J-19 forum you just mentioned, and David Kazanjan's essay in particular, where he asks, quote, how we might relate to the canon in a radical rather than a reformist manner. Knowing that the canon should end while also understanding it to be a structural feature of the academy as such, what is to be done? Or rather, how might we do what we do? And so I think the question isn't canon, yes or no, but how we interact with the canon. I also want to credit Rachel Nichols's essay on the pleasures of irreverent reading from the same issue, where she has that wonderful line, we don't need to take a text seriously to understand it. But to remind you, Sean, our ongoing conversation about irreverence toward the canon began on the periphery of the Academy and that we walked out of the 2018 American Literature Association Conference to a bar where we had a friendly rant about the fan club hero worship tendencies of our field. And I mentioned my all-time favorite complaint from a student evaluation that I was irreverent toward the canon. So there are many genealogies for this idea of a reverence toward the canon and debates about the canon have been going on inside and outside of the academy in many different movements over the past decades and especially today. In this episode, Carrie and I talk about a reverence toward the canon with three of our C-19 colleagues. This came out of that conversation between us, but transformed into a roundtable at the C-19 conference on dissent. And now it's a podcast. In these pandemic times, we kind of envision this podcast as a meeting in the hallways of a conference, a follow-up conversation about a panel at a bar. Could everyone introduce themselves? 
Hi, I am Crystal Doncourt, and I am a professor of multicultural literature at SUNY New Paltz. Hi, I'm Emily Gowan, and I am a dissertation fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies and the Library Company of Philadelphia, um, and a graduate student at Boston University. And I am Julia Bernier, Assistant Professor of History and Black Studies at the University of North Alabama. Thanks for being here, everybody. We met over Zoom for about two hours and talked about three essential questions. How do you define or understand irreverence toward the canon? How do you do irreverence toward the canon? And why does it matter? What you're hearing today is a condensed version of that conversation in which we talk about irreverence and canon in terms of pedagogy and research, accident and conspiracy, center and periphery, and monuments, vandalism, and abolition. We thought like to warm us up, we would ask a question that we did not prepare you for, which is like, what the hell is the canon? What's the canon anyway? And this sort of comes out of a a concern with the fact that a lot of people, there are a lot of assumptions made about us having read the same stuff, whether that's in primary school, secondary school or college or or, um, even graduate school. Um, So we thought we would just kind of ask what everybody's canon is, if, if everybody works with a particular canon, and if we even have a, a, like a shared set of texts that we'll be discussing during the podcast. I don't know. I think this is a hard question for me. You know, I work in 19th century, um, late 19th, early 20th century Black women's fiction. And while in my head, you know, yeah, Pauline Hopkins, Francis Harper, all the rave, but no students have ever read them, right? No students have ever encountered them. Many of my colleagues have not encountered these authors. And so I think from the kind of narrowness um, and focus of my graduate study, I'm having a kind of unnatural sense of what the canon is in this kind of body of literature. There's maybe 10 other scholars that are all thinking with me too, but I think I would place this outside of the canon of what we think about Black women's literary production being for for people who are not in the field and, and for students who are outside of the field and think that they think of the 19th century and black women writing as like Harriet Jacobs, like a slave narrative, maybe Mary Prince. I don't even know if like that's going too far, but what ends up being excerpted in their Norton anthologies, which are none of the women that I write about and work with. So I think I, my undergraduate education occurred in the sort of like post-canon era when uh, departmental requirements for what students should read and when had had sort of fallen out of favor. And my undergraduate reading was very self-directed and the the courses that I was able to choose were very self-directed. And so when I arrived in graduate school and decided I wanted to become a 19th century Americanist, I felt like a lot of what I needed to do was play catch up and learn the canon and figure out what it was, um, which involved a lot of talking to peers and professors and, you know, looking at other people's comps lists and figuring out what are the, what are the foundational texts of this discipline. Um, And in doing, in trying to figure that out, I became very interested in canons and and sort of obsessed with the idea of canons. And my project has become 
very, very deeply engaged with what canons are and how they interact. And so the two canons that I work with the most in my work are the, the canonical texts that get cited most often when people are talking about the rise of the novel. And then canonical 19th century American texts that are themselves very engaged with that older canon. Yeah, for real. I mean, it's so, I also did not do undergrad. I don't have an undergrad degree in English. I, my degree is in German studies and women's studies, and I have a master's in German studies. And then I came to do a PhD in English and was like, oh, books, I should read them. And so it is really weird, I think, also to think that like the research canon is different, like Crystal said, from the teaching canon and how how those are just kind of two different creatures in a kind of weird way that there are multiple canons, none of them overlap, but I think like the canon of research is defined for a certain purpose and the canon of teaching is for a different purpose, but like, why? <laughs> I always sort of assumed that like the, the American literary canon is um, founded on the novel and um, that it's organized around like the, the sort of ideologies of the novel. So my, as we get into kind of the meat of the conversation, my sort of own irreverence toward the canon has been not to research novels at all. We're sort of mostly situated in, in English departments or in literary studies, and that there's a canon of um, American, 19th century American literary studies uh, that we might all be able to kind of refer to, or at least you know, know the the dimensions of in some ways. I'd like to actually ask Julia real quick to chime in because Julia is coming from, um, you know, uh, an interdisciplinary history program, but I wonder if you could speak to just what constitutes your canon as a, as a historian and also talk about like the role that literature plays in your research and teaching. Yeah. So, right. Like I teach in a history department. I've been, um, you know, my master's degree was in history. I have an undergrad in art history. So like you, Carrie, I'm kind of moving through all of these different fields, um, which makes, I think, my kind of understanding of a canon a little bit different because um, I don't think of it necessarily as... <sighs> being represented by a canon of text as much as it is about like events and na historical narratives, which is, are, are of course where like the ideas about a literary canon come out of, right. And why the, why the texts exist as they do within this canon. But for me, it's more kind of working through ideas about, you know, U.S. history, mythologies and how they present themselves in the survey classroom. And I think, too, as a black studies scholar and Crystal, you can also speak to this. And you did a little bit in saying that, you know, you have this like relationship with other people in um, in your department. Right. Um, and more kind of general field. But I think that we sort of have this weird relationship to to the canon and to historical work and theory because of. Um, how we relate to it or how other people imagine we should relate to it, which is kind of, which I'm, I guess I mean that people want to know what we know. Right. Um, within this can these kind of like this canon or these canonical ideas, um, while at the same time, they don't know anything that we know. Um, and so it's this kind of like, antagonistic, I guess, relationship. 
and you really kind of on you can see and feel right the this the idea of a canon and how um what power that has, right? Or is imagined to have in these kinds of relationships um, that that um, interdisciplinary, but also especially Black studies, ethnic studies, um, women's studies scholars have um, with, with other people that care about things like canons. I think that's an excellent point, Julia. And I think especially about how this happens in the classroom with my graduate students and, and how what I introduce to them, is especially like in, in terms, as terms of, I think of like Black feminist theor- theorists and what that canon looks like of like, of um, uh, whether it's a kind of Black studies theory or, or literary theory and how that only gets legitimated by students' understanding of the existing canon that they get in that kind of literary theory volume. I think that might even bring us to the first like real question about what is a reverence toward the canon? Because that's the question about disposition. I think like Julia, you use the word antagonism in there. And I, or, and I think like irreverence is different than antagonism. Irreverence is also different from treating the canon as foundational. So what, what is it? Like, how would you, any of the three of you, how would you define irreverence toward the canon? How do you understand it? What is irreverence? Now, I don't know if you're going to say this is different, but <laughs> I think of it as in, being insubordinate. You know, I feel that it's not even something I have to try to do, but when I come into the classroom to teach the text that I know and to introduce the theories and methodologies that I know, it is almost always working against the foundations that have been laid for my students prior. So it, it feels, and it can create antagonisms in the classroom. So I, it's like probably a, a byproduct of what Julia mentioned of that kind of insubordination. And I don't even, I don't like that language, right? Um, but I don't feel like I'm trying to be insubordinate, but as it comes up in course evaluations, I, I think that's how students read this challenge, right? To their, the, the text that they were fed on and, and, and you know, learned were the core of American literature. and ways of thinking like a literary scholar and a really kind of particular visions of what that looks like. To your point, Crystal, I think too, is that like antagonism maybe isn't the the right word exactly because I don't really feel it's two-sided because I don't really care. Right. I care in the sense that I want to like dismantle them, but not that I care that I might not know something that someone considers canonical, right? Um, And so when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about this idea of abolition as disorder. Um, And I'm thinking about that as in terms of what we're talking about here too, right? And so um, the idea of disorder is used to kind of... um, make abolition a threat, right? Um, But at the same time, it actually is disorder, right? Um, Or a disordering of the world, like as we know it. 
And I think that that's part of this relationship to a reverence for me, right? Like, how do we disorder narrative? How do we disorder time is something that's really important, I think, and something that I've been thinking a lot about, um, both in my work and in thinking about teaching, right? Because we're taught that there's this idea that history and time are progressive, right? And when we think about, when we try to disorder time, right, um, we can think about how the the relationship between the past, present, and the future in a way that I think does work that we're all trying to do, right, in order to make, um, make something different. So, like, you can't understand settler colonialism as a past unless you also understand it as a present, right, and vice versa. Um, you can't understand slave, the way slavery lives past its formal dissolution um, and nothing makes sense if you don't understand that the, like if you don't play with time in these ways um, or like reorient our relationship to it. Um, For me, a reverence toward the canon is remembering that it's sort of always been disordered, that these texts have never been hermetically sealed, untouchable, immutable things. They've always been open to interventions from, from by historical actors um, and have been renovated and chopped up and reconfigured and hated and loved and ignored. And like all kinds of things have happened to these texts. All kinds of things continue to happen to these texts. And so when I'm reading a canonical text, I'm reading it not as, as like the Norton critical edition. I'm reading it as an archive of historical reading, of transnational reading, of different kinds of ideological dispositions that get mapped onto it. Um, of its rejections over time, of its appropriations over time. And I think when we're teaching, this is something that's really easy for all of us to, to get on board with because we watch how students interact with texts outside of time and outside of their original context. Um, and they have weird responses to them as a result, as, as do we. Um, and those weird responses are really interesting. And, you know, they love texts in ways that we wouldn't expect them to. They hate texts in ways that we wouldn't expect them to. Um, and that are really different from what a highly trained scholarly approach looks like. And so so I think, you know, I, I'm totally on board, Crystal, with what you say about like needing to be really conscious about dismantling some of the um, critical attitudes that accompany these canonical texts. But I also don't think that students are usually the ones bringing those into the classroom, nor do I think most historical readers were bringing those to the text. I think that in a lot of ways, that's a phenomenon of professional criticism. And so to like to read canonical texts like a historical reader might have or be open to what those readings looked like and how textured and strange and idiosyncratic they might have been is, I think, a good possibility for us. Yeah. And I love that concept of like loving or hating or ignoring or being like of weirdness, because I think that's how I think of reverence is that it's playful. Like there's some sort of connotation of play, whether that is like play as in manipulation and like putting things out of order, um, playing around with different options, but also just like, you know, being willing to get weird with it. I think that's when I've had the most success in teaching is just really leaning into like how completely batshit some of the things that we read are. Like, this is absolutely bonkers, y'all. Like, and just to throw that out there and be like, well, this is weird. Charles Brockton Brown, like, here we go. It's canonical. It's also weird as heck. Like, let's lean into that weirdness. I think that's a reverence. 
I think like structuring the question of irreverence toward the canon or re kind of phrasing it in terms of antagonism is really fascinating. I'm thinking through a couple of different sort of spatial metaphors that have come up from, you know, kind of older ideas of sort of center and periphery. Like, what is the relationship between the periphery and the center here? And, you know, part of the issue of canonization is the construction of a intellectual epistemological center or whatever against which everything else has to be judged. But there's a really interesting energy in the friction between like the, the center and the periphery there. I have a question, actually, and just kind of on the tail end of what you said, like in the classroom, or even through your research, do you want these texts included in the center or these alternative readings to become like the, the foundation of thought? I, I haven't thought about this question before, but, but I ask myself, what am I trying to achieve here? Do I want to center these voices? Do I want them to become the canon or do I want them to remain, as you say, like on the periphery? And so it's a question I'm thinking about. I just feel like that relation. The, the antagonism that comes up between like the, the, the center of the canon and the, the sort of margins of the canon, the red and the unread occurs right there in the very materials at the center of the canon, like, like the Norton Anthology of American Literature. I think these questions, I, I think there are agendas that we can think a little bit more critically about. I don't know what they are, right? I haven't thought more critically about them yet, but <laughs> I think there's an invitation there also for us to kind of question what is allowed to sit at the periphery in these kind of canonical vol volumes. The best way I can describe how I do irreverence toward the canon is like pulling back the curtain to reveal that the Wizard of Oz is just like some dude pulling levers. It's not arbitrary. Some There are things that happen that cause these texts to be in the Norton, there's reasons, material reasons why we use this most popular anthology, but just sort of revealing the structures by which the canon is made is how I do a reverence toward the canon. But I think it's also, it is so tempting to want it to just be like a vast conspiracy that we're like railing against when I, it's not, it's not that evil, but it's also not that arbitrary either. I want to say, but the conspiracy keeps it going. Like, you know, that, that's how I think of it. Like, I, I, I hear so much of what you say as, as true, but the conspiracy keeps it going, uh, whatever the conspiracy is, um, keeps us from keeping out other authors with different views, keeps people making the same selections and same choices, whether it's through the, the kind of curriculum mapping that happens at institutions, it's tied to, you know, all kinds of priorities, right? So there's so many things that feed into these choices that like, you know, on their own are not sinister, right? We just keep reproducing, you know, either even just because of time or what we're told to assign or whatever, but they, they feed into something larger. Um, but I guess I, I guess what I want to challenge is the idea that the agenda is always like sinister or always really um, connected to power and oppressive historical dynamics, which I think is really easy for us to assume about canonical texts and often for really good reasons. Like some of the most canonical texts that we come back to again and again, like have done real damage over time and in their and their own moments. <laughs> Um, but the reasons those books took such exert such a hold on on the literary imaginary doesn't always have to do with the, the way that they very cleanly represent structures of power. 
was just, I just wanted to mention something about the status of the literary in discussions of the canon, because, you know, on the one hand, to, you know, draw in some insights from, from Julia, who's does interdisciplinary, like, histor- you know, history, but also to kind of ask whether there is a kind of irreverence toward the canon implied by reading non-literary texts or in challenging the definition of the literary, whether it's in anthologies or scholarship. I have gotten this complaint from students that we don't read any literature, and yet we're using the Norton Anthology of literature, you know, literature and co- American literature and culture. And, you know, they're not wrong in the sense that, like, a lot of the stuff in there is essays, newspapers, science, you know, quote, science. Um, obviously, there's poetry. There's some fiction in there, but like only a couple of novels are really like represented in there. But, you know, even going back to the first volume of the Norton Anthology, like beginnings to 1820, um, a lot of that stuff is travel narratives and, you know, ethnography. And so I, I think one way I do irreverence toward the canon is by sort of, you know, um, questioning the status of, you know, the the literary when we're studying literary and cultural history. I'm happy to jump in here, Sean, because the, the way that I do um, a reverence toward the canon does hinge on this question of how coherent the literary is as an idea. I'm a book historian. And so a lot of times what I do is reconstruct the circulation and reception history of a, of a super canonical text. And people actually were worried about overly literary or overly absorbed readings of these old world texts in the 19th century um, print public sphere. So you have things like the American Sunday School Union published a little um, didactic poem in a in a pamphlet. And the, and the subject of the poem was a little girl's problematic misreading of the Pilgrim's Progress, which caused her to run away from home and get lost because she thought it was an adventure tale. <laughs> So like all kinds of irreverence can unfold if you have this textual object that looks like a toy, is getting read in unruly ways, is prompting like imaginative adventures. So there's always an irreverence that's possible in the way that people are approaching the canon. Um, as an a part of an African-American print culture class, I want to get my students thinking about reading together and also to think about new kind of literary frameworks that involve what they may consider historical documents, right? But which I would say is all literature, <laughs> right? Um, for us to read together. Um, so that's that's what I'm going to be doing anew in my teaching that I'm already doing in my research. And I think, Sean, that, that it's all literature. I, I think technically you are right. <laughs> I think that's an awesome illustration of what you mean by insubordination as well where you were talking about at the beginning of the discussion about insubordination, that somehow being able to read the canon or knowing it is to like develop a kind of intellectual cultural capital for oneself in like a meritocratic academy and framework and whatever, but getting people to read together and, and, and build community around reading and communities of study. I mean, I certainly think of like the Fred Moten and Stefan O'Harney idea of black study when you, when you discuss like, collective um, study or, you know, reading together. That seems to me to be like a really um, powerful take on 
you know, a reverence to the canon in the sense that no matter what object you're doing it with, you're going to, even if it's a highly canonical text or whatever, you're going to like produce, you know, differences and differentiations in your student, you know, in your class. And that seems to me to be just like a nice illustration of the stuff we've been talking around antagonism and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it brings up like the where you aim the toward and irreverence toward the canon. Like, is the toward aimed at the texts themselves or is it actually aimed at the institution or the structures in which we have previously had to encounter those texts? And I think that like re-aiming of the irreverence toward dismantling or disrupting um, or, you know, literally like breaking free or outside of those structures in which we had previously encountered the texts is really valuable. So I love that example of like changing how your students read, how they encounter these texts. So when my students come to the classroom and say, oh, I've read such and such a book before, I go, great, you've never read it like this. Like I want to encourage them, I guess, to become irreverent readers. And if we are going to say, like if we are going to claim that what we do at all is important, that our field is important, and we're committed to working with text, then we necessarily have to read and think irreverently, right? Like for these things to be texts that we still consider important after all of this time. So I, I, I see it as like a compelling necessity in some ways. Like reverence is what you do at a funeral and irreverence has some life to it. And like, if we are going to have some sort of life or future to our field, like we can't just like bow our heads and be silent towards it. Like we have to make noise and agitate and yeah, be irreverent in order to, to be doing anything worthwhile. I'm going to say too, like besides fields that it's important for like the world to go back to thinking about abolition, right. And these ideas that we've been talking about, about how we kind of introduce students to thinking through, you know, how, uh, how these things come into existence, right. And all of this stuff. And I guess for me as a historian, it might be like slightly different in, the in the classroom and things like that but it like reminds me of Angela Davis's whole point in our prisons obsolete right which is that prisons I mean first they come out of reform but that's like a story for another day um but that they're created under these historical conditions right and they can also be dismantled under the same and so I want students to not only be like irreverent readers, I want them, to, their politics to be irreverent, right? I want them to be able to imagine a different world because they're able to imagine the way the world that we know it right now has come into existence. And so I think for me, I actually don't understand why all historians or like anyone who studies the past, which in a lot of ways is to say almost everyone aren't abolitionists. Right. And so I think that that's the potential for why do irreverence towards the canon. Right. And I think if we think about canonical texts as things that have been digested and regurgitated by the intersecting forces of reading and, and print production, and we take seriously the interpretive consequences of that, it helps us to, and, I, and this is sort of, I think, to your point, Julia, it helps us think about the way we construct canonical knowledge in our own moment. People have been satirizing and 
rejecting and imitating famous stories and famous ideas as for as long as those stories and ideas have been in circulation. Um, and as we form new canons and counter canons, these same interpretive and material forces are going to converge on those all over again. Um, and so it, I think it's helpful doing a reverence toward historical canons helps us also be skeptical of our own reconstructions and dismantling of canons today. Um, and also just like more practically, we're all going to keep having to teach these texts, I think. And so to think of these canonical texts as living documents, as these as things that have always had a really complicated reception histories, have always occupied really interesting spaces in people's reading lives, makes them both less threatening and it also allows us to acknowledge some of the, the real, you know, problematic patterns of influence that they have participated in. And like, I, I really love that idea that, that both of you have sort of touched on here of how our irreverence is a model for our students and for a next, the next generation of like living beings on this planet, not just of scholars. One thing that, you know, will always be remembered about the abolitionist movement of the summer of 2020 uh, is, you know, the, the removal or, you know, vandalism of monuments. And, you know, for me, it's very easy to imagine a future and think a future in which those monuments, whether they're to Paul Revere in Boston or Christopher Columbus in Boston or Robert E. Lee, you know, any, any in Richmond or, or, you know, Ulysses S. Grant or whomever, it's very easy for me to imagine those monuments gone. And that, that doesn't leave a vacuum behind it, the removal of those monuments, because, you know, people are already gathering in that space and have been gathering and, and offering alternatives to that kind of monumentalization already. And that's what an abolitionist, you know, mindset will, will tell you is that there's already, you know, that abolition isn't about absence. It's, it's presence to paraphrase Ruth Wilson Gilmore, but yeah. Um, why not imagine a future in which the canon doesn't exist? What does that future look like? If we just teach the stuff that we're, we're talking about on the periphery, is the Academy just going to like, reproduce a situation in which to give them an object of analysis to, to, to justify the existence of English departments and, and schools of humanities and the institution that everything will just, no matter what comes into the academy, will get pushed to the center there, or they'll just be that kind of like, you know, weird volcanic, like cycle of, of pushing things to the extreme, pushing them back to the center. Um, I, that's so, sort of abstract, but I, but I really just want to talk about why we can't imagine a future in which the canon doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, I think this is such a good question and I, and I, to I'm totally with you and I, I can absolutely imagine a scenario in which we never have statues again of, of any of these um, historical bad actors, but we will not have gotten rid of 
their presence in history, right? Like getting rid of the monument isn't getting rid of history, which I think is something that we all try to explain to people who think, who conflate monuments and history. Um, but your your idea about vandalism and the way that vandalism and um, sort of artistic engagement with some of those spaces is itself a record of how interpretations of history change um, with new with the emergence of new historical contexts, I think I, is more useful to me for thinking about how how the canon is going to evolve and how we're going to continue to engage with it. Um, and, and like taking those moments of vandalism or reinterpretation seriously as part of the interpretive afterlife of this idea or this thing or this person is to me very exciting. I'm thinking about why we like to your question an appended question, like, why do we revere anything at all? Like, why are we so committed to reverence of things that we don't understand? I think to um, bring what you just said to what Sean was asking about, and also what Crystal was saying about why do, why are we even interested in, like, monumentalizing anything or whatever, because that's what happens in the built landscape too, right? Is that like these things just become part of our lives. And like, maybe we never stop to read the plaque on the statue or whatever, but they just become like part of the kind of, um, you know, they become a part of our everyday lives. This all is just making me think about that William Wells Brown quote, right? That like slavery cannot be represented. Um, and these questions about like representation, either in the canon, in the built landscape, really kind of thinking about, and I think Sean was talking about this earlier, just like, why do we do anything that we do? <laughs> I <get it. laughs> Well, I think Crystal put it maybe a little bit better than that, which is why are we reverent to things at all? But, you know, why be reverent at all? It's reminding me of uh, a great line that Carrie had a little earlier that reverence is for a funeral, irreverence is for life. Yeah. But like, I, I have had this kind of thought that one way to be something toward the canon, a disposition toward the canon would be more funereal, would be like not necessarily reverential, but more funereal in the sense of letting it die. More, more, more abolitionists, actually, I think, in terms of the end of the world, like not, you know, continually like trotting out some of these figures to represent a past that, you know, we have certain political narratives for to make sense of the present, whatever, something like that. But um, I, I think about this very, very literally in terms of just, you know, some collections of authors, materials or bones or hair or like whatever. And it's just like, you know, that did come up with about Emily Dickinson. That's something my students knew um, that, you know, Harvard University and Amherst College have like, artifacts and struggle over artifacts of Emily Dickinson's life, including like body parts, um, more or less, if you're talking about hair. And it's just like, can't these, can't you kind of just let these people go? I, I really like this idea of, um, I don't want to say like killing these texts every semester. I work in the 19th century, but there is such a wealth of like short fiction, short stories that we do not read. And because we're committed to telling, like we come into the classroom with our own narrative of, of how this period or this moment is to go and then we shape it. 
But if I just bring all these texts in and then we ask ourselves the question, like, what do all these short pieces or these unbound novels or these disparate pieces of literature tell us about the time themselves, right? And not creating a narrative for our students. I think that would be a really generative and useful way to think about what literature tells us about time and kind of, in some ways, Julia, thinking about, I don't know, connecting history and literature and, and all of it just telling us a story about who people were, what they believed, when, how they acted, what they thought, and how and what we can do, I don't know, in our own world. Well, it would also put you in a position to be uncertain about how, what you were going to teach and what was going to come out of the class. Whereas you can kind of script a syllabus using an anthology and canonical text and you kind of know the narrative that you're going to teach the students. Whereas if you introduce stuff that you're reading for the first time or haven't really read, that's a huge risk. and you know, that's not the kind of thing that would, you know, make a good case for our future existence to university administrators and so forth. We don't know what we're doing in class. Like we're <laughs> teaching new stuff. We're being experimental. We're like going to try to like really, you know, I'm uncertain about what the academic outcomes are going to be of this class. I'm uncertain about what the outcomes will be. It's probably not something administrators like to hear. But I, I think that that's like more in line with what Julia was talking about in terms of like the, the program of disorder that like abolition calls for. I think it would be a great project, but of course, yes, that's labor intensive and it, 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 it unsettles us and it disorders our orientation even toward like what it means to be a good professor. And those are things that we also have to rethink to be able to do that kind of work. That makes me think too about like Hartman's ideas about witness and empathy and like how that gets performed across the canon or in the classroom or in the reasons why we choose the things that we choose to. Yeah. Like, are we choosing these texts because they have literary worth, whatever the hell that is, or are we choosing them because they teach some sort of citizenship Mm, that's a whole nother bag of yeah. <laughs> and to me totally totally linked though to the idea of the canon doing harm that was such a rich conversation and obviously there were also so many highlights we couldn't fit into a 40 minute episode for example, we discussed how Fanny Fern is introduced as a supposedly non-canonical author so often that her non-canonical status has become paradoxically canonical. There was also a great side conversation on baby book editions of canonical C-19 texts. Like, why do these even exist and why do academics buy them? And we're also not publishing the segment in which we reveal which canonical 19th century text we have not read and refuse to read. But you're welcome to make guesses and allegations at us on Twitter. Irreverence might not seem like the most professional disposition to take, but isn't a certain irresponsibility to the profession a form of responsibility to the future? The experience of recording this podcast and the content of our conversations has further highlighted how knowledge isn't generated just by individuals or institutions, but rather through this kind of informal jostling together of bodies and ideas in ad hoc community. Even if we can't literally be in the same room together right now, not yet. 
Speaking of irreverence and community, we'd like to end with some beautifully irreverent moments we just couldn't bear to leave on the figurative cutting room floor. Okay, I'll just begin reading the script. Julia, don't make me laugh, please. <laughs> Here, I'm gonna stop my video. No, don't stop your video. No, Julia, I wanna be able to see you, but just mute your, mute your audio or something. And like, don't make faces at him because he'll lose it. <laughs> no, I can be very professional about this, I will. And it's okay to laugh and be natural like people. Oh yeah. Right? Yes, for sure. Okay. I hope, otherwise I gotta go. I'm also gonna like try not to swear much. Oh. The podcast needs some of that. The podcast needs some of that. Or is well, it that's kind of what we're going for. Is like, you know, it's we're gonna try to make a, a nice, polished, professional podcast, but like it's called a reverence for the canon. If there's not some like rambunctiousness, then what the hell are we doing? Oh, there's my dog. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of confused now, which is a good sign. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.